All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and we want to start by just welcoming everybody to the live show today. Uh, if you're coming in on our show, there are a few different ways that you can participate with us. I'll go over those just really quickly. Uh, and that's what we want. We want your guys' participation, comments, questions on what we have to discuss today, or, or any other questions that you have. We'd be happy to talk about those as well on our show. So if you're on the Zoom app, you can submit those comments or questions to either the chat window or the Q&A box. And I'll be monitoring that throughout the show. We'll be able to see that. Um, or if you're coming in on Scott's Facebook page, we have the live feed going. Uh, you can just write your comments or questions in the comment window there, and we'll get to those. Uh, if you are on Facebook, there's about a 10 or 15 second delay. So uh, we see your comment. It'll just take us a little bit to get to it. Um, we're not actually synced perfectly with Facebook. So just so you know about that. Um, today, let's bring in uh, who we have on the show with us. Uh, we've got our program director, Scott Smusser. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing well. Good to see you. Uh, and we've got Dan Bunting with us. Again, uh, he was with us a couple weeks ago. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. Good to see you, Dan. And today, uh, for the first time, we've got Justin Dobbs with us. How are you, Justin? Your mic is muted, Justin. <laughs> so I'm doing well. Thanks, thanks to God, and uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah, good. Yeah, good to see you guys. Um, so, Scott, what are we going to be talking about today? We are going to be talking about one of the New Testament epistles, and the panelists know what it is. Uh, but here's how I want to introduce it. I want to ask each panelist to come up with a brief description of this book. And I think after you hear a brief description of it uh, from each of these three gentlemen, you will probably guess what book we're going to be studying. Uh, so who wants to start us off? A brief description of this book without giving the name of the book. That would be cheating. Uh, I'll start because going first is probably easiest. Uh, it's a shorter letter uh, written in very a very topical way on kind of short descriptions of practical life. Okay, very good. Next description. Dan. It's a, a letter on human relations. All right. Justin. Uh, two descriptions. One, I think I've heard it called Proverbs of the New Testament. Yep. And then also, it, it's kind of one disciple's uh, filtered view. You can tell he's digested the Sermon on the Mount, and he's yes. been giving it back to us in a lot of practical ways. Yes, yes. So, uh, obviously, let's see if we can get somebody in the audience to tell us what book we're going to be talking about. So it's going to deal with how people relate to people. It's very practical. It's short. Proverbs of the New Testament. And it constantly echoes the Sermon on the Mount. Who out there in the audience wants to tell us what the book is? Uh, Eva came in and said it's uh, James. Eva is exactly right. It is the book of James. Uh, and so let's go ahead and get started here. Um, Jonathan, if you could get uh, Blue Letter Bible up there on the screen here in just a minute, uh, and we'll have that on the screen as well. Uh, somebody read for us verse one, and we'll talk very briefly about who wrote the book. So this is an English Standard Version. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And apparently, which James is this? 
looks like this is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, one of the 12, but this would be Jesus's actual physical half brother, however that works out. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Uh, and we see him referred to not only back in the Gospels, but of course, uh, very prominently in the book of Acts. What are some things that we see him in the book of Acts? Well, James is there right in the beginning in Acts chapter one, right? Where they are there uh, in the upper room praying. Um, he, he's there, right? Isn't he there in the, the beginning? Apostles and Mary and Jesus's brothers. So this is where he is now a believer. It's kind of interesting because back in the gospel of John, we found out Jesus's brothers didn't believe on him. And then in Acts chapter one, Jesus's brothers are up there waiting uh, in Jerusalem in that upper room. So uh, what appears to have made the difference for James in becoming a disciple of his brother? Resurrection. Yeah, and there's a verse particularly that touches on that. First Corinthians chapter 15, if you're called the witnesses, when Paul says, uh, I preached the gospel I preached by which you know, you were saved. He said, I delivered to you that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, then the 12, then he appeared to 500 brethren. And then in verse seven, then he appeared to James. And so there's two James among the 12, but this is, this is a different James. So I think, I think that's right. This is this James. Anybody else have any comments on authorship before somebody takes us into two, two through four? It is interesting considering, yeah, sorry, Scott, is one thing is interesting considering that if this is, you know, if this is James, the brother of Jesus, how he calls himself, you know, how he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's a very humiliating kind of title um, or, or a humbling title to take just in and of itself as a bond servant of someone. But also he's saying, I am a bond servant or a servant of my actual physical older brother. Uh, no. So that just goes to show, I think, you know, what he understood about Jesus uh, at that point. You know, it wasn't just that he's my, my physical older brother, but he's my Lord. Um, and, right. and if James's own brother had to say that about him, then you know, we also have that relationship with Jesus as well. Right, right. Uh, and, and just to mention, uh, the, the, as prominent as he was, Acts chapter uh, 15, who proposes that they write the epistle to Antioch is James. Um, when Paul comes back from the third missionary journey, they go to see James and the brethren. Uh, when Peter is released from prison after James, uh, the son of Zebedee, has been killed, Peter tells the people there at that Mary's house uh, where the road is at the gate, go tell James. So he was he was a very significant person in the church there in Jerusalem. Is, is it okay. is it fair to say he was probably one of the elders of the church there in Jerusalem just because of Paul's interaction with him? Is that Acts 21 where he goes to James and the elders? Yeah, he may be. He's a very prominent person there. I wouldn't be surprised if he's one of the elders. Let's just read what that text says. Um, the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present, which could be that he was one of them or him and them. Uh, he's also referred to as an apostle uh, in some sense in Galatians 1, where he says, other of the apostles I didn't see except for James, the Lord's brother. Um, 
as Barnabas is also referred to that term. Uh, but he's not one of the original 12. All right. Uh, Dan, how about take us through verses two through four? Sure. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of the various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In fact, take us all the way through eight, please. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Comments on this text. He begins uh, with trying to make a depressing topic happy. And, and as, as a good Christian, we're all going to say, yes, trials are good, uh, but only because there are passages like this in the Bible. It doesn't necessarily come intuitively that we enjoy pain, enjoy difficulty. And that's how he begins this letter. And I think that that's, uh, it probably speaks to the fact that everyone was suffering at the time or everyone had it really easy and they were about to suffer. That's an interesting thought because like at the beginning, we said, how are you? How are you? We said, good, good, doing well. And we often relate doing well to nothing's going bad. Yeah. And life is not going to be like that always. Yeah. And we're better people for the fact that it's not always that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other comments that's an interesting principle that he introduces especially in verse three when he's explaining why it should be joyful to meet various trials he says in verse three the reason why you can count it all joy is that you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and then steadfastness in verse four takes its full effect and makes you perfect and complete lacking nothing so it's not just you know uh, bury your head in the sand and try to ignore it and be happy blindly through all of the hard things, but realize the effect that hard things have on you. Um, it, it makes you stronger. It, it prepares you for harder things in the future. Um, and, and so that you don't lack anything. And that's a principle that we really understand in a lot of other areas of life as well. Um, like I'll just give one in like physical exercise and training. You go through the hard, painful, you know, uh, go to the gym and you get done with your workout at the gym and you're sore, it hurts. But you go through that because you know one day it's gonna be easier and I'll be able to lift more weight than I could today or I'll be able to run longer than I could today. And so uh, it's hard in the process, but it's joyful to think this is getting me to the destination that I wanna be at and it's gonna equip me for harder things that will come. So it's not just, you know, He's not talking about, you know, be happy-go-lucky and, and uh, you know, ignore all the hard things, but look where the hard things will get you to, I think, is the more fuller picture of what he's trying to show. Yeah. And what's the, what's the expression we use about physical working out? No pain? No gain. No gain. Yeah. Uh, and you brought up something here, Jonathan, I want to ask you guys, tie this in with verse 12 and verse 14. Because when we face trials and temptations, it may make us stronger or it may make us weaker. 
What's the difference? So verse 12, uh, go ahead and read that. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in your trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And it seems like the, the blessing is only going to come to people who stand the trial. But who can stand the trial? The only people who are actually able to stand the trial are people who are motivated by their love for God. I love God so much that this circumstance is not going to shake me from my hold on him. Uh, so yeah, you've got people who meet a trial and because of their lack of love or because of our, our weaker love for him, uh, it's a good thing we discover that we get a chance to, uh, to see that. But if we give up on loving the Lord, because we love something else more, we love our peace. We love our comfort. Then the trials are just going to shake us off of God rather than have us cling closer to him. Let's take a real practical example, like, uh, addictive behaviors. Um, if, if I become uh, a slave of alcohol, each time I give in, am I making myself stronger or weaker? Weaker. Yeah. But when I endure the temptation, resist it, and choose to do what's right, that just made me what? Stronger. So when we face a challenge, it's like there's a down stairway and an up stairway, you know, and we can fall down the stairs and that's pretty easy, but we're banged up and we're a lot lower than we were, or we can prevail and become stronger. Any other thoughts on that section? I just want to point out verse five for a minute, um, which is if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach that be given him. Uh, I think this verse, we take it out of context a lot that we need to pray to God and ask God for wisdom. And I think generally that principle is true. You could apply that in a very general way, but specifically he's talking about situations of various trials. Because I think there are times where I meet a situation and I'm thinking, why is God letting this happen? Why did God keep this from happening? You know, what, what, what is going on right now? And why am I hurting the way that I'm hurting? And I don't see any benefit out of it at all. And so the, the counsel that James gives is you, you need to go to God in prayer and you need to seek his wisdom, not just generally, but I think it's his wisdom saying, uh, God can help you see his goodness and his, um, his training through this circumstance and you'd be better for it. Yeah. And I think going on with that, that there seems to be kind of two different areas of trials that James is addressing. There are these trials of like temptation, which lead to sin, but also I think just more generically trials in life hard things in life kind of like what you were alluding to justin or like you know a tornado comes and rips up your house or uh, a loved one dies um or or something like that you lose your job not because of your own fault but you know the company's downsizing or, or whatever it is hard things to deal with um when those things happen those are also a way for us to prepare ourselves and strengthen ourselves with the lord's help and i think about um you know paul maybe this isn't an exact replica situation but Paul with his thorn in the flesh we're not told exactly what that is but that was a trial that he had to endure and the Lord said I'm using this for a, a purpose so that you can know that my grace is sufficient for you 
and my power is made perfect in weakness. So the, the reason why Paul was going through that trial was to teach him and train him to trust more in the Lord, um, which is a good thing and something that we all need. So that there are, there are joys or helpful things in every trial and situation when we're facing temptation. If we stand up to that, it makes us stronger to stand up to the next temptation. But when it's just a general trial or hard thing that comes into our life and we endure through that trusting in the Lord, it equips us to deal with the next hard thing that life will throw at us. And I'll also say it equips us to help other people that are going through a similar trial. Um, you know, whenever we've faced something, it's hard to know exactly what someone else feels, but there is a lot of overlap when there's someone going through the exact same situation that you've gone through. You know, if, if you've, you know, lost your job and had to live for years, you know, trying to, to scrape through, you're equipped years down the road to help someone else that goes through that exact same situation. It might not be totally exact, but, but equips us to help each other. Yeah, Second Corinthians one fits with that point exactly. Second Corinthians one, where we're comforted with the comfort from Christ, so that we can comfort other people. All right, I got a question on nine and ten. Unless somebody has something else on two through eight, anything else on two through eight, anybody? Uh, one, one more thing there on verse five, though. Um, I, this helps me to better picture God during those trials, because it says he gives generously to all without reproach. And that without reproach kind of catches me off guard. Because um, if, I don't know, so, sometimes people ask you for help, and uh, maybe you're more generous than I am, but sometimes it's like, come on, get real. Like, you know, do you not realize how busy I am right now? And you're asking me for help, and uh, you can take care of that. You don't need help with that. You know, suck it up, buttercup kind of thing. Um, I'm a lousy father, but that's, that's kind of the, the idea, the idea sometimes is just, um, people ask for help and you think, well, come on, you got this. You don't need my help. God, God never has that attitude toward us. He gives generously without reproach. We go to him asking him for wisdom, asking him for comfort, asking him for counsel, and, and he gives it, uh, and it connects down with, um, verse 17 he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change so he is constantly good toward us he wants us to do well he's sending these trials into our lives not to watch us you know falter and, and come to pieces he's sending them to us because he wants us to be joyful he wants us to receive the, the blessing of going through them and I, I think that changes my perspective of god and maybe that's a lot of the wisdom that I need in the trial is that God's trying to bless me here. If I would just love him, I'd receive the blessing. Yeah. And we're limited by time and money and energy as to how much we can help people. God's not so limited. Mm -hmm. right, question on verse nine. What does it mean? Let the brother of low degree glory in his high estate. That's kind of easy and the rich in that he's made low. Why should the rich glory in that he's made low? It's actually a real blessing whenever uh, someone that's you know, high up is humiliated and, and brought low. Um, it's, a, it's a fuller picture of kind of the eternity. Um, you think of some examples uh, in, in the scriptures, my mind immediately goes to Nebuchadnezzar and the book of Daniel where Daniel, uh, you know, or Nebuchadnezzar is exalted beyond everyone else really in the world. He's 
for all intents and purposes, kind of the, the ruler of the world, or at least the known world at that point, his empire is massive. And he starts glorying in himself um, and how great he is. And God humiliates him, humbles him, which looks like that does a lot of good for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he, he kind of comes to his senses and comes to himself in Daniel chapter five. And, and he's, uh, you know, a better man for that. Um, so it's a, it's a good thing to be reminded of your position before God. Um, and your relationship with other people. Yeah, because in this world, it's so easy for us to look at some people and think they're up here and other people way down there. And Jesus points, Jesus brings a lot of these people up and a lot of these people are like, damn. Yeah, and that's similar to what I was going to bring out. What James says here in 9 and 10 is kind of a summary, um, almost a mystical kind of statement, you know, the mystical text, dark is light and light is dark, you know. And he's saying the low is high and the high are low. And it sends us back to the stories and the parables of Jesus. And so many of, his, of Jesus's stories and teachings are putting that into terms practically. And James just has this cute little phrase that sends you back uh, to, the, to the message of Jesus. If James is saying it all on his own, we, be, we could be scratching our head. We could come up with an example like Nebuchadnezzar, Jonathan, but we could just as easily say, well, that doesn't make any sense, but it, it rests on uh, the foundation of what Jesus had taught over and over and over again. It, it's almost like James gives us a memory verse of all those lessons. And what are some of those paradoxes that Jesus gave? He, he gives stories that illustrate them as well, Yeah. but there are several of them. It's like the first shall be. Yeah, first be last and the last shall be first. And another one. And the greatest one you shall be the least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And another one. He that humbles himself will be exalted. exalted. He that exalts himself will be humbled. And even himself, he says, uh, the son of man, I, I think he calls himself the son of man, did not come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. Mm -hmm. Yep. He says Very those good. things over again. Well, in connection with James 1 here, um, when I think of the Beatitudes, I often go to Matthew 5, but Luke's Beatitudes are pretty brutal. Uh, he says in Luke 6, um, you know, blessed are those who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Okay, Matthew says the same thing, but down in uh, Luke 6, 24, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Uh, and so if what I'm living for is my pleasure here, then I have a rude awakening. So back in James, what a blessing to be awakened now while I have time to do something about it. And so I can boast that uh, I've been humiliated. Look at my wealth. It's nothing. It, like, it doesn't actually last. It's not eternal. Uh, and so it's a good thing that I was humiliated now so that I can humble myself and then later enjoy the exaltation of, that, that God will give. Yeah, PJ said too, um, you know, he's thankful for the humiliation or humbling so that I don't look foolish. Uh, and I think of what David says to Nathan, the prophet, when he has to choose between the punishment for his sins. David's reply uh, is, let me not fall into the hands of men, but with God, for his mercy is great. Cool. All right. Down here in 12, through, thank you, PJ, for the comment. Uh, and we'd like to hear more from the audience as well. If you have a comment or a thought or a question, please come in. Thank you for doing that, PJ. All right. In verses 12 through 18, let's look at the two uh, births there, the two conceptions. Um, one, 
is the, an evil one. Each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Lust, when it conceives, bears sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings death. Be not deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is uh, from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom can be no variation nor the shadow that is cast by turning. And then look at the positive birth in verse 18. And somebody read that and discuss it for us, please. Of his, of own, his own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Sorry, I stepped on somebody's toes there. It's comments on that section. One of the first things that, that I think of in that opening kind of remark, um, talking about temptation, where it comes from in verse 13, James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. Um, it's easy, an easy response to have to temptations or trials is to shift the blame on someone else or, or want to get an object for blame of why this is happening rather than just kind of endure through it. Um, or maybe if it's a self-provoked trial to realize it's, it's my fault that this is happening. Um, but one of the easy kind of objects that a lot of people in the world and even believers can, can place the blame on is God, that this is God's fault. You know, the, the reason why this hard thing is happening is because God, you know, made it happen. Or the reason why my life is in shambles is because God isn't watching out for me or whatever else. Um, and it reminds me well, of God the gave words, this woman to me that told me to eat it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. The very first one in Genesis chapter three. Um, but it reminds me of maybe the, a better attitude to have about God. Um, this doesn't answer all of the, the things around that, but how uh, Augur in Proverbs chapter 30 words his prayer that he wants to have to God, where he says in Proverbs 30 in uh, verse eight, uh, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He realizes this kind of situation where at the end of verse nine in Proverbs 30, he says, if I'm poor, then that could lead me to profane the name of God. Um, and it's it's a real you know struggle and temptation to uh, not want to blame God for hard things in our life, but we need to realize that God is not you know, tempting us uh, in, in evil ways, and his purposes are always good for us. That's kind of how God introduces himself, and one of the key traits of God in the scriptures, he is only ever always good, and that may not be exactly only ever always what we want or would like to happen in our lives, but God's purposes are good for us. Justin, you had your hand up. Yeah, just on, on that line of uh... God's purpose for us. Uh, the uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but the Greek word there for trial and for temptation is the same Greek word. And so God does not tempt us, but he does try us. And so, you know, in the Greek, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but God does not Greek word, but he does same Greek word. And so it's like, well, okay, well, what is it? Uh, and I'd be interested in your all's thoughts on this, but uh, it seems like God's motivation for spending those difficult things into our lives is very different than what Satan's motivation would be. You know, Satan's going to send these things or, or participate in bringing these things into our lives because he wants to see us fall. Um, he's, he's, I heard someone say he's the kind of guy who could throw a mountain at you if he wanted to, uh, but God won't let him. 
Uh, I mean, he just, he wants to destroy us. He wants to see us stumble and fall during these trials. Uh, so he's tempting us. He's trying to get at our desires and twist them to pull us away from God. God's trying to send us to these situations where we have to choose and strengthen our love for him by weakening our love for these other things. So it's the same situation that God means to use for our good that Satan would use to tear us apart. But it's not the situation uh, that's the problem. It's my heart going into the problem. It's my desire for the thing that God says you can't have. And Satan says, can't you? Can't you have this thing? Of course you can. Who is God? And there's, there's this conflict. So it's, it's an interesting and helpful uh, idea to remember that it's the same situation that God's going to use to bless me that we're looking at in verse two, that actually could give birth to sin and death uh, if I let it. So the question is, what do I desire most? Do I love God or do I love these other things more? I think Dan had his hand up. I think you kind of went into it a bit there, Justin, but uh, you know, God gave Adam and Eve instructions and uh, you know, are you going to call that a temptation or are you going to call that a trial of doing what God wants you to do? Uh, and a lot of that semantics. Um, some people say, why did God put that tree right there where they could eat it? And my other thought is, well, they could have disobeyed the instruction to, to tend the garden and keep it just as much as they ate that fruit. Uh, so there were, there were several instructions that they were given. And the point is um, personal will uh, against God's will. And in verse 18, we see what God's will is. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And, you know, we can take that word of truth and run the other direction if we so choose. Let's jump back to the metaphor uh, that Jonathan produced before about like working out. You know, you're in the gym, the guy that's spotting you. Maybe it's your personal trainer or, or your coach or whatever. Uh, he's challenging you. He's also helping you and he's spotting you. You know, if, if you get in trouble, he's right there, you know, with you and he's encouraging you to push through the pain. You can do it. You can do it. You know, the guy that's saying, well, let's go get donuts. <laughs> he has a different message or the guy that's, you know, you know, standing away and hoping the weights fall on your neck that's a different thing there well that's just like nehemiah and everybody that nehemiah had to deal with nehemiah was a pain in the neck and he got everyone to build the wall by saying you can do it you can do it and yeah. then everyone, uh everyone else was saying oh why don't you go hide in the temple why don't you go do this oh let's just you know take it easy and and, and be slack and so they, they're just in the story of nehemiah you have both of those kinds of characters yeah yeah very good. That is, right. It is. Go ahead. One, more, one more thing. It is interesting how often this theme of God trying or, or testing his people shows up in the scriptures. Just kind of two examples of that. Um, and I picked these two because they show really kind of the purpose of why God does that, at least two of the primary purposes. In Judges chapter three and verse one, it says God left the different nations in the land of Canaan when Israel was coming in to test Israel by them. And in verse four, it says they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers. So, so he gives us, you know, trials and, and tests to see, are you going to do what he says, which is another theme that James will pick up on. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to say that you believe God and, and that, you know, he is your God. And it's another thing to 
do what God says. Um, and he'll pick up on, on that idea at the end of the chapter, but also in chapter two. Um, and then there's also more than just knowing if we're going to obey his commandments, but knowing the kind of people that we are. God wants to test that and test our hearts. And there's an interesting story about King Hezekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 34, um, where uh, uh, oh, it's not in Second Chronicles 34, in Second Chronicles 33. Um, where uh, Babylon sends some envoys down to Hezekiah and they want to see what Hezekiah's kingship is like and how, how the nation of Judah is going. And in 2 Chronicles 33, 31, it says, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. So there's this kind of test where there's this scenario of praise where Hezekiah can now glory in himself and kind of uh, flex his muscles and show how great of a man that he is. And God leaves him to see, what are you going to do, Hezekiah? <laughs> we know whenever whenever the spotlight shines on you. Um, I think in Proverbs, I don't remember the exact proverb. Proverbs says that a man is tested by his praise. Um, so whenever we oh. receive praise from people, how are we going to respond <laughs> to that praise? And that happens with Hezekiah. Yeah. yeah. Good point. That, that goes back to ver verse two is various trials. And you know, Scott, you you brought up the guy at the gym who says, oh, come on, let's go get donuts instead. Or it's the guy at the gym who's intentionally stacking the weights on that he knows you can't, right. you can't lift. So there, there are different trials that are going to come our way, and, and they may look different for different people. But in the hands of God, they're always meant to bless. Uh, we just, we've got to make the choice. Yes, we got to make the choice. All right, we got 11 minutes left. Let's do 19 through 27. We're not gonna have time to talk about each verse. I wanna read each verse, uh, but each of you pick out one of these verses that you would like to just zero in on because this is just, man, <laughs> so much good stuff here. Let's look at it. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant weakness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the word. Who wants to start? Well, I, I'll just, you know, go ahead, Dan. Okay. I, I love verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I, I love that verse because it stops me in my tracks and, and I try to throw it at everybody else that I can to stop them in their tracks. Of course, I have to keep a decent dose of verse 20 um, for myself when I'm handing it out to other people, but I'm not acting in anger. Um, it seems like um, 
a lot of my Christian sisters and brothers, sisters and brothers really love that righteous indignation idea. And um, I, I wonder if we use that as an excuse to, uh, to go around being ugly and worldly. He's just saying here, our anger does not produce God's righteousness. And there are, there are just, there, there, there aren't situations where we need to stoke that fire or we need to be proud of ourselves or, um, you know, find all the reasons, all the reasons to defend um, our indignation uh, when we are uh, in a situation. Uh, James is saying, and he's going to get to it over and over again in the way that the, the tongue behaves and the way that brothers and sisters interact and behave with each other in chapter four and that, that anger gets us nowhere near um, the righteousness of God and, and we just need to keep that in our hearts deep into our hearts and when we're angry, one of the expressions we use for when we lose our temper I lost my head because we stop thinking clearly when we let anger control us All right, who's next well, I wanted to talk about the same verse. Is that okay? Is another sure. um, but uh, the verse, verse 20, the anger of man, you know, sometimes we get angry because we didn't listen very well. We, we assume that we know people's motives. We assume we know where they're coming from, their heart. And so we're not quick to hear. Um, I think there's probably a better connection we should make between being quick to hear, not just quick to hear other people, but being quick to listen to God, because later he's going to say, uh, receive with meekness the implanted word. So I need, I need to be listening. Wait a second. What would God want me to do in this situation? But I think one of the things that's implied in verse 20 is that while the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, the anger of God does produce righteousness. And like you're saying, Dan, that, that stops me in my tracks. How did God produce righteousness? Uh, anger is, you know, it's a desire to destroy that which offends. So if I find this thing offensive, I want to, I want to destroy it. Uh, God finds sin offensive. Now, usually um, we'll struggle to maintain that same kind of uh, attitude because we'll find things offensive that God doesn't find offensive at all. Uh, or we won't get offended by things that God does find offensive, but God finds sin offensive. And the way that he destroyed that is in the body of Christ on the cross. So God's anger uh, produces righteousness and mercy and grace. And my anger just belittles and tears people down. And so until my anger looks like his anger, then this righteous indignation that you're talking about, Dan, uh, I think I fall way short of that. So our anger ought to exist with the desire to redeem, to restore, to bless. Uh, it ought to imitate God's anger here. So it's just, it's a big challenge. But it's also something to be really grateful for because God's angry at my sin, uh, and yet He wants to save me. He doesn't want to destroy me. He wants to save me. And so it's just a wow. I mean, the picture of God here, and then the standard for us in the way we handle our emotions too is really huge. Yeah, and another section that's really kind of stands out to me um, is verse twenty-two through twenty-three. Um, where he starts talking about being doers of the word, which is something he'll pick up again on in, in chapter two. Um, but in verse 23, he says, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. And then in verse 24, he looks and goes away and all at once forgets what he was like. Um, so it's just illustrating kind of the foolishness of hearing God's word, but not letting it affect you and change you. And I, I've heard before um, 
uh, I can't remember where this originated at, but I heard someone say once that Christianity is not a spectator sport. Um, no. And that's often how it gets treated that, you know, it's just something that we go and kind of watch and enjoy. And, you know, we, we go to church and hear the sermon and that was a you know good sermon. Great. And we get to shake hands with everyone and, and then go home and do our lives. Um, and that's just not the picture that Christianity is in the scriptures. It's a life altering, transforming process of our, our hearts being changed, our lives being changed, our relationships being changed, our families being changed, our work habits being changed, all of that, you know, everything is encapsulated in Christianity. Um, and I, I think about this is not talking about Christianity, but this is how people have been for a long time in relation to like religion and wanting to hear God's word of wanting to just view it as a spectator thing, but not let it penetrate. There's this section in Ezekiel 33, where God tells Ezekiel, this is how it's going to be for you. Um, this is how people are. He says uh, in Ezekiel 33, 30, as for you, son of man, your people will talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses and say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear the word that is from the Lord. And they come as the people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act and their heart is set on their game. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And so God is warning Ezekiel, you know, you're, you're the spokesperson, you're the prophet, you're going to share my word and people are going to smile and enjoy it, <laughs> um, but they're not going to be changed by it. And that's a dangerous place to be in as someone that professes to be one of God's people to smile and enjoy it and, you know, shake hands and maybe, you know, uh, hear the sermons, hear the lessons, hear the Bible being taught and just smile through it all, but not be changed. The Bible is supposed to penetrate us. God's word is supposed to, to identify the failures yeah. in our lives and make us change. Um, it's yeah. not supposed to be this warm, you know, cushy feeling or, or whatever. In some situations, there's a lot of peace and comfort and joy God's word can offer, but it's also a sword um, that that penetrates us and, and discerns our thoughts and intentions of our heart and things like that. So three minutes left. So real brief answers here. Um, what in the Sermon on the Mount is verse 22 echoing? the closing remarks right the wise man and the foolish yeah. man yeah the wise man is the one that heard and did the foolish man is the one that heard and and doesn't do um and that this thing that y'all been talking about of uh, where you know just watching it and not doing it think how many bible verses there are that we can put under the category of mouth religion i'll throw out one or two i'd like y'all to throw out a few uh later in james if a man says he has faith but has not worked uh, or matthew 7 21 not everyone that says lord lord is going to go in the kingdom of heaven but he that does well my father what are some other verses about that mouth religion but isaiah 58 talks about true fasting and false fasting um, okay and then in joel the same idea rend your hearts and not your garments Right. When you're mourning over sin. All right. And uh, Luke 6, 46, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? First uh, John, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness. Mark 7, with your lips, you honor me, but your heart is far from me. You know, just over and over, there's these references because it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. What does Jesus say about the Pharisees in Matthew 23? Or they say and do not 
Anybody have any final comment before Jonathan closes us out? I'll throw this out there on anger. Compare James 1 and Ephesians 4 and see what the type of control there should be. In James 1, it said, be slow to anger. Then Ephesians says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, we can easily be as quick to anger and then not control ourselves. And so we're being selfish and petty and vindictive. And then we can hang on to it. Yeah. And, you know, there's some people that they're quick to get angry and then they forget about it. There's some people, they're a slow boil, but once they're there, man, they remember what you said in 1978. You know, and then and then there's some people that just blow up. And in a really bad combination is if, <laughs> if you're all three. Uh, <laughs> Justin, you had uh, your hand uh, in. Yeah, I, was, oh. I think it's going to come in later in James 3, talks about taming the tongue, how no man can tame the tongue. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to control something when it's not even a desire that we have to begin with. Uh, so if, if our desire is to love people, um, you know, going back to uh, where temptations come from, if, if we're desiring the good for other people, if we're desiring God to be glorified, then our anger is going to come out in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Well, that is um, all the time that we have. Obviously, man, there's a lot of content in James. James is a really rich book, a lot of different things to discuss that we're not going to get to discuss all of them. So um, so our audience, thank you all for participating with us today. If there are some things that you're noticing in the text of James that maybe we're not addressing, you'd like us to talk more about or have some specific questions about, you can let us know about those. We'll be happy to slow down and, and talk about that or any other topics that you have. Um, we had uh, at least one question come in on a kind of different topic. We'd be happy to pivot um, and, and talk about the things that you want us to talk about here. That's why we do this show. Um, so thank you to uh, all those that have come in. Again, if you have any of those questions, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv. Um, Um, And we'll get to those in future shows. And thank you guys for your discussion today in James chapter one. We will see you all next week, Lord willing.